Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Fox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. My guest today is Emma Ashford, a research fellow in foreign and defense policy at the Cato Institute. Uh, Emma has been on the show previously. We had a kind of big picture discussion about restraint in foreign policy, uh, but with Iran in the news, I, I wanted to have her on to talk more specifically about American policy in, in the region, the interconnection with, with oil, with everything else. Uh, so thank you. Uh, thank you for coming in. It's great to be back. I'm not particularly pleased about the circumstances. Though. Sure. Well, that's it's the nature of foreign and defense policy, right? You don't you, you don't really get in the news for for good news. It does make you feel a little awful though when your sort of professional triumphs are tied to everything blowing up. Yes. No. It's it's sad um, occasion. So it it seemed like after a ratcheting up of tensions, we are maybe stepping back from the from the brink somewhat. And so to me, that's like a good time to ask, like, this is like a dumb question, but it's like, what is the U.S.-Iran conflict about? Like, what is the, what is the, because, you know, you could you could look at any moment in the Cold War. You could say, well, we're mad because the Soviets did this yesterday, or the Soviets are mad because we did that yesterday. But like, the issue was some notion that the communists were trying to take over the world, and we didn't want them to. Like, what? What are we trying to do in the Middle East? Uh, yeah, I'm not even sure I'm qualified <laughs> to answer that last question. But with regard to Iran, it sort of depends how far back you go, right? right? Um, so, I mean, we have been in, engaged in sort of open hostilities with them, at least on our side, since 1979, since the revolution. We were technically friendly with them before them. But if you ask an Iranian, they might go back further into the 50s and talk mm-hmm. about how, you know, the CIA helped to overthrow um, the democratically elected leader of Iran. And so we have had sort of ongoing hostilities with for a very long time. Um, In the Cold War, they were somewhat Soviet-aligned at the end of the Cold War. Since then, it's mostly been, I mean, I would say just both sides are hostile towards one another. There's no real rational reason for it. Mm -hmm. It's mostly about the fact that we have historically been hostile towards one another. Um, Right. Yeah, the current crisis, though. So in the Obama years, we really saw this sort of 
de-escalation of tensions. Um, Obama actually did a very good job, and John Kerry in particular, of trying to reach out to Iran, um, wind down that historical amnesty at least a little bit. And then in the Trump administration, Trump withdrew from the JCPOA, the Iranian nuclear deal. He slapped on a bunch more sanctions, and everything just got really bad again really fast. Wait, and so that's sort of the... Trump will often talk about what he sees as the kind of, like, technical shortcomings of JCPOA, but he, but it seems like the better way to understand this is that Obama wanted to improve – Yeah, he wanted to step away from the long-term conflict, and Trump doesn't, right? I mean, like, the hawk's view is that the regime is bad in some more fundamental way, and so there's no point in trying to – not like you want war all the time, but but there's, there's no point in trying to sort of have a warming with them. Yeah, so, um, so the Obama administration people were actually very specific that they were trying to negotiate a nuclear deal. They were not trying to improve relations with Iran generally. But obviously that was the hoped-for end state of this whole process, right, was that if we could make progress on the nuclear issue, maybe we could make progress on, say, proxies in the Middle East. Maybe we could make progress progress on missile technology and, you know, eventually maybe we could actually negotiate with them. But I, I think they saw it much more as akin to how we negotiated with the Soviets in the Cold War, right? This was arms control. This was nuclear proliferation control. We were trying to work with a country, even though we had so many differences, we both accept that both countries are rational, both countries have something to get out of this. Um, and that was the basis those negotiations were built on. The difference, I think, with the Trump administration, with a lot of sort of Republican hawks, is there's this idea that Iran isn't rational, Mm -hmm. That it's not a country you negotiate with. Um, I believe it was John Bolton um, that said Iran is a cause, not a country. Mm -hmm. um, I might be wrong on who said that. But it's, it's this idea that underlies a lot of Republican hawks' approach to the country. Right. That the, the sort of religious underpinnings of the Islamic Republic make it inherently Un, undealwithable. Right. Um, or that they couldn't be deterred, for example. Mm -hmm. So if the Iranians got a nuclear weapon, well, it's not about mutually assured destruction. It's not about deterrence. It's that the Iranians are going to use the nuclear weapon because they're a martyr state and they don't have any sense of self-preservation. And so this is a very unrealistic view of Iran, where maybe there are a few people that have that crazy view of the world. Mm -hmm. But it's a state like any other, where there's a lot of different interests, a lot of domestic politics. And by and large, they're mostly rational about securing their their interests. Although obviously, to, to some extent, the sort of Trump, you know, tit for tat or even greater escalation is based on the idea that there there is a deterrence dynamic, right? Just that you want to approach it in a particular kind of, you know, aggressive, hostile way. But otherwise, what they're doing doesn't make any sense, right? I mean, killing one general doesn't it doesn't, like, cause the Iranian state to collapse. It's supposed to frighten them. Well, that's the inherent contradiction in this really hawkish approach to Iran, to be frank, is that, you know, they can't be reasoned with, they can't be deterred, but if we use enough force, suddenly they'll be deterred. And right. so it is it is a fundamentally contradictory point of view. Um, and the way the Trump administration has approached it is partly some people within the administration, maybe they believe this, maybe they're just saying it. They say, well, if we pile on enough sanctions and we make the costs high enough, Iran will come back to the negotiating table, we'll get a better deal. And then for some people, maybe they're saying that, but what they're actually thinking is we need to push for regime change. And mm -hmm. there's there's a lot of people um, in D.C. that have been arguing that for 20 or 30 years. Right. And we did see that, John, John Bolton on Twitter uh, the other day saying, well, he hoped this would show 
the futility of the whole thing, and we need to we need to go for regime change. Now, obviously, he he was pushed out of the administration, so that doesn't necessarily reflect Donald Trump's thinking. Uh, but that's an idea that's in the in the ether. It's certainly very popular. And if um, you look at people, not just like Bolton that was in the administration, you look at um, Rudy Giuliani that's really close to the president. He's been taking money from some Iranian opposition groups for years to advocate for them. So there's pretty strong ties between that community and, and some of Trump's closest cabinet. But I get the impression just from the way that the news says this was sold to Trump as, mm-hmm. as a hit on a terrorist leader, that he himself is not pushing for regime change there. And in fact, the, the fact that he chose to try to, I guess, de-escalate um, after the Iranian strikes suggests, again, that he's not really the one pushing for regime change. Right. Now, something that struck me that, that's always in the mix in a weird way in, in the Iran conflict is I, I saw M- Michael Duran had a op-ed in, in the New York Times about this. And the, like, social copy promotion was... Like, if we want to maintain a presence in the Middle East, we have no choice but to confront Iran, Um, which, like, maybe that's true. But to me, it was like building a lot into the if, because so much of the time, the reason we supposedly need to have this presence in the Middle East is to counter Iran, right? And there's there's a reflexive kind of element to a lot of this. Like when people complain about Saudi Arabia, we hear like, well, they're valuable allies in the region. And like, what are they valuable for is countering Iran. But so then that's why we need to help them when Iran blows up their oil facilities. And so it's like, why? Like, like what is the, there are lots of parts of the world where we don't have big military bases and lots of people. Um, So like, is it, is it important to be in the Middle East in this big way? Well, so I think you've really pinned down that there is this very circular logic to right. some of the arguments about our presence. And I think during the, the 1990s, that was a very relevant argument. Um, today, it's becoming a relevant argument again. We sort of pushed it on the back burner when we were doing the global war on terror, right? right? So we were we were in Iraq. We weren't in Iraq because of Iran. We were in Iraq because we were there to overthrow Saddam Hussein. We were in other countries because of terrorism. Um, right. And so that was the rationale that carried the day for a really long time. Um Prior to that, it was about Iran, but it was also kind of about securing oil, securing the sea lanes and energy security. Right. Um, and today, what we basically come to is that with the, the with that terrorist, anti-terrorist logic kind of receding, we're left with not very much that actually justifies a U.S. presence in the Middle East. It's, it's you know, it's deterring Iran. It's, it's energy security, but that's a very vague thing at this point because we're pretty energy independent ourselves. Um, and, and then maybe it's, um, you know, helping regional states to secure themselves. There's really just not a good rationale. Well, and the Iran interplay with the terrorism issue, I mean, it's, it's interesting, right? Because the, the specific logic of the original American presence in Afghanistan really seemed to militate in favor of cooperating with Iran. Right, because we were there in a country that was adjacent to Iran for a reason that was not about like sticking it to the Iranians, right? And so, th- in principle, they could be very helpful to us in Afghanistan. Alternatively, they could be very undermining of what we were trying to do there. But we were not like we were we were there after Osama bin Laden <laughs> or, or, or whatever. And there was like a brief moment where that cooperation was being. Realized. Yeah, there was a there was a brief moment after 9-11 where the Iranians basically offered to help. 
you know, at least with intelligence and stuff like that. And the Bush administration um, basically shut it down pretty fast because right. there were so many people in the Bush administration that had been sort of Iran hawks for such a very long time. Um, but really, if we're talking about Afghanistan, it's only in the last few years that we've seen Iran try to build um, connections with the Taliban. You know, for, for decades, they'd been opposed to right. the Taliban on, on their neighboring border. In Iraq, the situation's a little different. Um, obviously, Iran sponsored a bunch of militias, killed a bunch of U.S. service members in Iraq. Um, but like almost everything to do with the U.S.-Iranian relationship, the problem is bad blood. Right. It's not that there's a good strategic relationship or a good strategic rationale for being opposed to them. In fact, again, in the last few years, what we see is that Iranian militias and U.S.-backed forces are fighting on the same side against ISIS. So it really is much more about all the bad feelings we've built up in 40 years of trying to kill one another than it is about anything else. Right. I mean, that's what's so – it's sort of the, – the, the hostility with Iran, it precedes the war on terror, and now it seems to have transcended it almost, even though there was objective alignment against ISIS and against the Taliban, right? But there is more commitment on some level to that bad blood than to the terrorism issue. Yeah, and, and against al-Qaeda too, right? right? Because despite what Pre uh, Vice President Pence said um, about a week or so ago, there was no tie between um, Iran and 9-11. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there was, I believe, a couple of the hijackers transited that country well before they knew what their mission would be, um, well before they considered carrying it out. And that's really the only tie. So, right. I mean, that sort of misleading argument aside, again, Iran opposed al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda was a Sunni terror group. It saw the regime in Tehran as, as you know, fundamentally flawed and something else that it should be fighting in addition to the US and the Saudis and all this other stuff. So we, we've had a lot in common on the anti-terror front. The problem is that when a lot of those overtures were rebuffed, the Iranians turned around and sort of tried to achieve their own state's interests right. by backing militias in, in Iraq. I mean, that Pence argument struck me as particularly risable because, you know, so he's saying, well, some of these people transited through Iran on the way to Afghanistan. These are, you know, these hijackers, by definition, these are people the American government gave visas to. Obviously, we were not in cahoots with al-Qaeda, right? Like, they, I don't know, like, they, they got away with it, right? Like, it was a, it was a pretty good plot on some level. Uh, people didn't know. They were terrorists trying to hijack planes. Uh, that's that's why it it worked, right? To the the idea that the Iranians had this like mystical knowledge um, is it, it seems seems nuts. So so oil. So Trump speaking in his sort of Trumpy way uh, in his address Wednesday morning, he went off on this tangent about oil independence, and he didn't he didn't make a really clear point. But I think you know the public and experts have always, I think, long felt that America's presence in the Middle East has something to do with oil. But politicians, for various reasons, have never really wanted to say, like, like what it is that it has to do with oil. So if you go back to the Cold War, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I should also note here that during the Cold War, we didn't have a lot of troops on the ground in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. So this was a fairly small number of troops. It was basically naval presence. Mm -hmm. And much of America's oil came from the Middle East. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the oil that went to our Western European allies in NATO, which was obviously sort of vital for the, the anti-Soviet um, campaign, that also came from the Middle East. So we had a really strong interest in seeing that that oil continued to flow out of the Middle East and, and to our countries. And from a military standpoint, it was absolutely vital because the Soviet Union itself was an oil-producing 
power. So we needed the Middle Eastern oil to compete. Today, that's not the case. Most Middle Eastern oil goes to China, Japan, South Korea, goes over to Asia, goes to India, places like that. Um, the U.S. produces, um, is now the biggest producer of oil and gas in the world. Um, we consume most of what we produce, um, and some of our allies in Europe still get some Middle Eastern oil, but the fact is just that we're way less dependent than we used to be. And there was this, I mean, you alluded to this, right, but there's this specific military logic to the Cold War, right? Where, I mean, one part was we really thought there might be a war with the Soviet Union, right? I mean, that was an important consideration. And then the other thing was that the Soviet Union had satellite states, like, around the world. That was a real thing. So if the Middle Eastern oil-producing states were to join the Soviet bloc, that would be, like, a huge strategic nightmare, right? I mean, I mean it's a little bit outlandish, but also not completely inconceivable. Like, communist regimes took over many countries over the course of the Cold War. Yeah. So worrying that Iraq and Iran and Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, would somehow become part of the communist bloc was not a totally crazy thing, right, to keep in the back of your mind and to be worried about. Because if the Soviets controlled all the oil in the world, then, you know, we'd be, we'd be pretty fucked. Yeah, it's, it's totally not a crazy argument to make. During the Cold War, we were basically trying to ensure supply of oil, right? We needed the physical oil to come from the Middle East so that we could burn it in our cars and tanks and factories. Now, that's not what we're talking about. Now we're talking about if there's a disruption in Middle Eastern oil supplies, the price will go up. That will damage the economy a bit. That's not good. But it's not like we're actually lacking the stuff we need to run our economy. Um, and actually, if you sort of look at the history of, of oil and, and how we've managed our energy security, the most damaging thing that's ever happened to us was the 1973 oil embargo, mm -hmm. um, which was actually imposed on us by those same Middle Eastern states. Right. And that was about Israel. Basically, Lovely. yeah. Right. It was about the U.S. provided some support to Israel in one of the Arab-Israeli wars, um, and OPEC basically said, well, no more oil for you. Mm -hmm. Right. And and so, right. So now, I mean, of course, if, if Middle Eastern oil production stopped, oil would be more expensive. People would be annoyed. Uh, but it wouldn't be like then in an emergency situation, the United States would be unable to fuel its fighter jets or something. Like, we have oil. Yeah, from a military standpoint, energy security is much better than it used to be. From a civilian standpoint, not necessarily, because the price could go up so high, maybe you couldn't afford to fill your car. But from a military standpoint, we're much better right. off. Right. I mean, you don't necessarily care as a consumer, oh, well, my dollar is now going to a guy in Texas rather than to a guy in Kuwait. I mean, maybe you, maybe you feel better about that, but I think mostly people want to like be able to drive their cars <laughs> and not, not pay too much money for it. But it's never been clear that you know, a, a big military presence actually makes oil cheap on a sustainable basis, right? It, which is different from saying a, a military presence ensures that there's some kind of physical access. Well, that's the other question, right? So um, a lot of these arguments about energy security and U.S. presence in the region bleed over from that Cold War period, mm -hmm. and people have just kept parroting them for years and years. But that was about a naval presence to make sure that nobody closes the Strait of Hormuz, for example. Um, that's not about tens of thousands of troops on bases in Iraq or in Jordan or in Syria or anywhere else like that. Um, to be frank, a lot of those troops um, over the years, the things that we have done in those regions have destabilized countries that formerly produced a lot of oil, which is actually bad for world markets. Yeah, so let, let's take a break because then I want to talk about how that, that transitioned. 
Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. So, yeah, so as you were saying, during the Cold War, it seemed like the oil was more compelling strategically. And we had a presence in the region, but it was modest compared to what currently exists, right? And and so how did so much, like, how did it come to be so much bigger over the years? You know, it was a process of basically steady increases. So um, the, the, the the kickoff was the first Gulf War, mm-hmm. right? So um, that was actually a war fought over control of oil. The, mm-hmm. the concern that Saddam Hussein had seized Kuwait, that he was poised to seize the Saudi oil fields, this was a very real possibility. Um, and so the U.S. sent, I think it was a half a million troops, plus the European troops, plus the Soviet troops, all went there to push that back. The interesting thing is that once that conflict was over, the troops didn't all come home. Mm-hmm. So then at that point, we see the Clinton administration starting to do things like set up no-fly zones over parts of Iraq to protect the Kurdish population. We see them um, setting up big military bases elsewhere in the region to try and keep an eye on, on Iraq and having this policy called dual containment, which mm-hmm. was both Iraq and Iran, and we were going to watch them both and contain them both. Then the war on terror starts. Those numbers of troops go up again and again. More bases, more troops in region. Um, Some of them came home under Obama, but not all of them. Some went back for the anti-ISIS fight. Trump has ramped the numbers up just dramatically since he came into office. So best estimate, the DOD doesn't give out good figures anymore, best estimate, probably about 50,000 troops there Mm -hmm. today. Um, Probably less than 5,000 at the end of the Cold War. And back to the the original Gulf War idea. I mean, again, this is one of these things where I, I guess they weren't going to say straightforwardly, like, this is about oil. Uh, but the idea was that Iraq has a lot of oil. Kuwait also has a lot of oil. Saudi Arabia also, also has a lot of oil. And if one person controlled all of that oil, he would then be a very powerful actor in the global economy, and we didn't want to let that happen. Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, so I don't I don't have the figures for 91 on hand, but if you mm-hmm. look at what those three countries produce today, that's close to 50% of global oil production. It's a huge amount. And, putting and it that, was even more back then, before— 
the U.S. Yeah. Shale stuff. And so putting all of that in the hands of one man like Saddam Hussein, who even though we'd worked with him previously, we know he's erratic, we know he's irrational, you know, not a great move. Right. And I mean, you wouldn't want probably anybody to have that much influence in the the global economy, much less, uh, you know, a bad guy, so well, to speak. Another way to put it right is that, uh, you know, our, our allies, the, the Saudis, they control about a quarter uh-huh. of the world's oil supply today. And that is enough for them to be what's called the world's swing producer, right. right? So they can buy themselves just by adjusting production, cause the price of oil to go up or down. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can just imagine how as your control of the oil market increases, that power just goes up. Right. And so, so then dual containment was about the idea that neither Iraq Iraq and Iran were continued to be at odds with each other, and we were, instead of picking a side in that fight, or instead of deciding we don't care, we were going to make sure that neither one could expand uh, because we we didn't like either of their governments. And again, because there's so much oil in the other countries, that expansion could be, in like a concrete practical sense, damaging. Well, so this was actually a course correction, right? Because during the 80s, we backed Saddam Hussein in the Iran-Iraq war, and then both countries fought themselves to rubble for 10 years. Um, and then Saddam Hussein invades Kuwait, and suddenly we decide he's a threat too. So dual containment is basically saying, well, now we don't like either of them. Mm-hmm. We're going to try and contain them, even though, again, both of them are pretty much in rubble at this point. Um, and the U.S. starts to take it. It's not just about energy. It becomes much more about regional stability. It becomes about, you know, freedom and pushing back against dictatorships and all of this stuff where even if it's not true, that's what policymakers are saying it's about. Right. And so now in the post-Iraq war version of this, right, so obviously no more dual containment. Uh, Saddam Hussein is gone. It seems like there's a series of regional struggles, right? Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Yemen, where there's like a Saudi pro-Iranian faction. And then like, we don't we don't want them to win. Well, if you go back to 2011, mm-hmm. it's the Arab Spring, right? That's what causes this to happen. Um, it's a little, you know, a little in Iraq about the US presence in mm-hmm. that country. That's what destabilized Iraq. But most of the other countries get destabilized by the Arab Spring protests, mm-hmm. whether the, you know, whether their dictatorships get thrown out of power, whether like in Libya, they get, um, you know, killed by the US, or whether they, you know, manage to put down the uprising, but start a civil war like in Syria. So all of these countries are basically in chaos at this point. Um, and you see pro-Iranian factions um, emerging. You see pro-Saudi factions emerging. Mm-hmm. And that language is a little misleading because mostly what these actors want is not for Iran to be great, right? They want to achieve their own domestic political agenda, mm-hmm. but they're willing to take, you know, Iranian or Saudi funding or Emirati funding to do it. Um, and so that's why we've seen across the region over the last five, six, seven years, this escalating set of sort of proxy wars and destabilized countries mm-hmm. is because now the easy way for regional countries to express their disagreements is to duke it out with proxies rather than directly. I do think, you know, you raised a great point, which is, I, I think, you know, people often read the sort of proxy relationship in in one kind of way, right? That in the Civil War, it's like, well, we have the proxies of the foreign state there. But it often seems more likely that it's, look, people are fighting their civil war for their own reasons, and then they want help because you're trying to win the civil war, right? So it's not that you're, you know, doing whatever because you love Iran. It's you're trying to get Iranian money 
because you just want to win. Yeah. The other frame that's really misleading that's sometimes put on this is the whole Sunni versus Shia thing. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, there is some truth to the fact that Iran primarily backs Shiite proxies and the Saudis primarily back Sunni proxies. But there have definitely been instances where that's not the case. I mean, look at the Iranians backing Bashar al-Assad. Mm -hmm. um, his coalition was not really made up of, of Shiite Muslims. It was a much more diverse coalition. And there were a lot of Shiite Muslims fighting against him. So this is, this is just another case where the oversimplification basically obscures the fact that this is a civil war where the Iranians are backing whatever side they think will bring the most advantage. Right. And the, the sectarian elements create maybe a natural affinity. Affinity and infrastructure. It's it's easier to, to to build those kind of bonds or people default to those kind of identities from time to time. Uh, but certainly like the content of the conflicts is not about religion. Typically not. No. Um, right. And in the case of, you know, the political science research is pretty clear on this. Um, in the case of proxies, you know, they are almost always about states achieving their interests rather than about affinity. Affinity helps, but it's not the key reason. Um, and proxies tend to be really unreliable, mm -hmm. right? So you can't necessarily look at any given conflict and say that that group is doing something because Iran told them to. Probably not. Maybe they are. It's very hard to say. Proxies are really unreliable. Sure, sure. I mean, it's a difficult it's a difficult relationship inherently. And so and so the the United States clearly feels it has a dog in this fight though, right? I mean, we are not dual containing Iran and Saudi Arabia and we're also not saying like you guys seem <laughs> pretty nuts and walking away, right? I mean, we are trying to help the anti-Iranian sides in, in a bunch of different conflicts. Yeah, and again, I think this is very historically contingent. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this, this isn't someone looking at the Middle East and saying, well, you know, for U.S. interests strategically, we should try and strike a balance here. This is, um, in many cases, uh, presidential administrations coming in and saying, well, you know, the Saudis are our friends. We have to work against Iran. And I think if you look at the pushback the Obama administration got for trying to balance things, even just in the slightest sense, you know, that maybe we will talk to the Iranians rather than just considering them complete pariahs. The pushback that they got just for that small step shows how really difficult it is to break out of this cycle. Yeah, and it was, I mean, this was a fascinating dynamic because the Obama administration, I felt like, had like two different Iran policies. And one was the policy they actually had, where we're negotiating a nonproliferation agreement. This is not about anything else. We're focused on this narrowly. Uh, we still have the same side we have. We're going to give assistance to the UAE and Saudis in Yemen. And then they had this kind of like other policy where Obama told Jeffrey Goldberg in an interview that the Iranians and Saudis are going to have to learn to share the region. Um, I can say he President Obama mused off the record to journalists at various times about strategic realignments. Um, word of that, I think, clearly got back to friends of the Gulf states who, I think not unreasonably, were sort of alarmed that the president of the United States would kind of, in casual chit-chat, say that maybe we should revise our entire alliance system there. But he didn't actually do any of that. Right? Like, I mean, there was no normalizing of relations. There was no even, like, direct talks uh, with the Iranian leadership in the way that, you know, Trump did his his press conference with, with Kim. Um, and so it, it created a very ambiguous situation where we continued to be committed to fighting these Iranian proxy forces, even with an administration that seemed to have lost faith in that vision. 
Yeah, there were a lot of mixed signals from the Obama administration, I think, on this topic. Um, You know, strenuously objecting that they had never said that this would improve all relations with Iran. At the same time, as you say, private comments, some comments to journalists that suggested that they really did see this as the first step in a dramatic improvement of our relations with Iran. Um, At the end of the day, you know, if you were to ignore Trump and what came afterwards, at the end of the Obama administration, we were definitely in a better position with Iran than we had been since the revolution. Um, You know, we actually had some open channels with them that were actually direct. That's the first time that had ever happened. But if you were to look at any other country in that context, you'd say, wow, those are terrible relations. So we'd made a few steps. We hadn't got all the way. And Trump has taken us back so far that I think we're like one step forward, two steps back at this point. Although, I mean, to get the timeline, Right, because Trump was uh, – what Trump said today was that during the JCPOA, the Iranians stepped up their level of attacks in the region. And that's not right. I mean, we had there, – there were some things that they did, but particularly in terms of attacking American troops, right, they they pulled back on that. And there was a – I mean, that's, that's why there was a thought that there could be an improvement in – relations. It wasn't purely quarantined around the nuclear topic. You know, there's some conflation there, I think, of attacks on Americans with Iranian regional activities. And this was was one of those things, again, where a lot of people just talked past one another on Mm -hmm, this. mm -hmm. So during the JCPOA, yeah, Iran largely stopped its attack on Americans. It did what it could to rein in its proxies. Um, Things did improve on that front, but it did not stop, um, you know, funding groups in funding the government in Syria. It didn't stop funding groups in, in Yemen or elsewhere. And a lot of people who disliked the JCPOA turned around and said, well, you know, maybe it solves the nuclear issue, but it does nothing to solve Iran's regional behavior. And so, you know, it's a bad deal and we should be concerned about that too. Yeah, I mean, that that's exactly hits the nail on the head, right? I and mean, because this is the distinction, right, is, you know, Iran made nuclear concessions. In exchange, we made economic concessions to them. And then in exchange, informally, Iran stopped encouraging militias to attack American soldiers. Because Iran, it seemed like, wanted America. Like, they wanted the United States to get off their backs. Uh, They didn't at all stop their own pursuit of regional dominance, right? It it seems like the Iranian desire would have been to get us to say, like, you're cool now, Iran. Like, no, no nuclear weapons. We don't care what you do. And then they could try to win a civil war in Syria or, or whatever else. And another faction in American politics is committed to the idea that we need to check Iranian power across the board, irrespective of whether Iran wants to target Americans at all. Yeah, so this is also the policy difference between um, Europe and America. On mm-hmm. this question, right, is that the Europeans, you know, like the JCPOA, still still in the JCPOA, but would be very happy to ignore uh, regional politics for the most part in exchange for sort of that dealing with a nuclear issue, maybe dealing with missiles and improving trade relations with Tehran. That's what they want. In America, there's a faction that definitely wants to go much, much further. Right. And, and this is the question of like, is there a real reason for the United States of America to care who is doing what in Lebanon, in Yemen, in Syria? I mean, you can care to some extent, right? But, like, is this really a first-order national security priority 
of the United States. Because when you look at the bill of complaints against Iran during the JCPOA era, that's really what it's about. I mean, I don't believe so. Right. I don't believe that this is a good enough reason for us to be there and certainly not a good enough reason for us to be there in such numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also a fight, frankly, that we are going to lose. You know, if if it's talking about, you know, deterring the Iranians um, from attacks on, on U.S. bases, proxies are going to continue to attack them. That's not something we could easily deter. If it's talking about, you know, regime change in Iran, militarily, that's something that would be incredibly difficult to accomplish. It's a country much bigger than Iraq. It would be much, much harder to do. So it's not clear to me that there actually is a military path to winning this, even though we're there. And that makes it even more unforgivable. And there's this incredible circularity, right? So we're deterring Iran from attacking our bases because it's bad. I mean, obviously, look, if, if you're the commander-in-chief of the American Armed Forces, you have to care about people attacking your soldiers. But if the soldiers weren't there, they wouldn't be getting attacked. So preventing attacks on bases can't be a good reason to have the base there, right? Deterring attacks on your bases is something you do when you have some other reasons that you need the bases. What it means is American presence in the region ends up being a bit like a, a snake eating its own tail. Uh-huh. It's, um, you know, we're there, that causes casualties. The American people don't forgive casualties easily, which, uh, you know, who can blame them? Right. You know, it's, it's, it's awful when American service members die. They shouldn't have to, to do that. But the casualties then make it much harder to um, go with any kind of conciliation with Iran um, and make it harder to withdraw the troops. And so it's just an, an, a cycle that it's very hard to break out of. And you've seen, I mean, President Trump has spoken, for all he's he's had a very anti-Iranian policy, but he seems to speak with frustration about the duration and cost of American military presence in the Middle East. And yet, at least as best as you can tell, he doesn't see the connection between these things. You know, President Trump seems to take this really interesting sort of third way. Um, so in foreign policy, most people either argue, like sort of lean in or pull back, uh-huh. right? And President Trump seems to take the argument that, you know, we should go in, hit them hard, whoever it is we're hitting, and then we should get out quickly uh-huh. um, and not concern ourselves with staying to deter other adversaries, not concern ourselves with staying to ensure stability, you know, that we should get in and get out. And so it's kind of this this middle way. Um And, you know, I mean, it's certainly, from my point of view, it's not a good approach, but it's better than the alternative if the alternative is always being there. Yes. I mean, it's (laughs) – I always have a a difficult time knowing knowing exactly how you want to characterize it, right? Because the thing is, is that Trump isn't actually withdrawing troops, right? He keeps talking about how he doesn't want to have this big military presence there, but it's not what he's doing. There's been, I think, 14,000 new troops since May of last year. And that I'm sure that does not count the troops that have been sent in the last couple of weeks. And I know there have been major deployments. Right. So that's what I always find a little, I don't know, puzzling, confusing. You know, um, Walter Russell Mead, right, has this concept of like, quote unquote, Jacksonian foreign policy, which long predates Trump. Uh, but it always seemed to me, it's an effort to paint a version of Trumpism that has a real strategic vision, right? In which the United States isn't going to be on the ground in huge numbers, isn't really going to care about, you know, is Iraq well-governed or whatever, but we're going to be tough, right? We're going to be merciless with our enemies. We're going to punch back hard. Um, and it would be interesting to see somebody actually try to do that, but it's like, it's really not 
reflective of the Trump administration's actual policymaking. It's in line with Trump's kind of stray remarks. Uh, But we're there on the ground in a pretty intensive way. And when he lists his bill of complaints against the Iranians, I mean, it includes attacks on Americans. But fundamentally, the whole breakup of the JCPOA was about, as we've been saying, like other Iranian proxy activities, right? So the question of, like, why why from this allegedly Jacksonian point of view are we so, like, jazzed up about uh, Yemen? Well, so there are people who make a Jacksonian argument and who make a, a logical, well-reasoned Jacksonian uh-huh. argument. You know, so if you look at the writings of people from, say, the Hudson Institute mm-hmm. or some, some people like that, they are making fairly well-reasoned arguments. Um, some of them arguing that the president should, you know, get us out of Iraq and get us out now because we don't need to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are people making this argument. But the problem is, as with everything with President Trump, you know, he seems to kind of agree with whoever he talked to last. A lot of the time, the reporting really suggests on the Soleimani thing that Pompeo um, spent a long time sort of building him up to it, getting Pence to weigh in in favor of it, you know, telling Trump that he'd look strong if he killed this terrorist leader. Um, So it seems to me that Trump's advisors themselves aren't Jacksonians Mm -hmm. um, and that Trump himself is only sporadically that. He may in his heart be a Jacksonian, Mm -hmm. but he's basically just sort of doing what seems good in the moment. And it's not that unusual on some—I mean, I I always want people to understand the difference between what's weird about Trump and what's actually normal about American politics. It's not that unusual for presidents to, to some extent, get rolled by the kind of entrenched weight of the national security apparatus. Uh, They deal with a— I mean, I don't know exactly how to put it, but it's like the top military commanders are not ordinary political appointees. You don't just kind of like step in and run roughshod over their preferences. Um, And there's been across administrations like a lot of investment in – like more Middle East. Yeah, and there's, I mean, there's an entire literature devoted to explaining presidential decision-making, so some of it in foreign affairs, that basically looks at the role of advisors. Mm-hmm. And advisors turn out to be incredibly important, particularly when the principal, the president, has no real foreign policy experience himself. And Trump is, I would say, the least experienced foreign policy president perhaps ever. I mean, Obama didn't have a huge amount of, of experience either. But in recent history, most presidents have had at least some military experience. Trump doesn't. Right, right, exactly. Okay, let's take another break and, and come back to this. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year. And forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Prop G Pod wherever you get your podcasts. So what do you think we should do? 
Trump, he likes to he likes to listen to whoever he talked to last, so he, he decides to talk to you. You know, I would tell him that it's a great decision to de-escalate like he's doing, that he has, you know, shown that he is strong um, and that now is the time to find an off-ramp before we all end up in a war that bogs us down in Iran for, for a decade. Now, uh-huh. that's probably not what I would say if I was talking to almost anybody else, uh-huh. but I think that's what would sell it to President Trump, and that's where I sort of hope he's going on this. Right. Um, for, for a slightly more reasoned argument, I would say um, the key here is stopping escalating things. Uh-huh. Um, at this point, I think it's going to be very hard to unwind all the way back to where we were before President Trump came into office, but we could at least talk about returning to compliance with the JCPOA. We could talk about perhaps creating some kind of extension deal, you know, in the next presidential administration, see, working with um, the Iranians to actually try and find a deal that um, at least replicated some parts of the JCPOA. We could talk about taking off some sanctions to show that we were willing. And again, I think that's something that even in the Trump administration, you could probably sell to the president as, you know, showing that we are magnanimously, um, you know, trying to show we're willing to negotiate by taking off some sanctions. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think there are paths to de-escalate here, um, quite a lot of them, actually. The question is whether the president will take it in the absence of that advice. Right. And I mean, it, it seems to me really fundamentally, I mean, this is the one of the most frustrating international conflicts from my point of view, because there's so little genuine conflict of interests between the United States and Iran. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a long bill of particulars, you know, of, of grievances, but the Iranians are not in a fundamental way trying to do anything that's that of interest to the United States of America. I mean, the thing is, if you um, sort of go down the list of things that we're meant to be worried about with Iran, right, and you go down the list and, you know, it's terrorism, well, it's mostly not terrorism against us. Sure, there's there's some concern about Israel in that context and Hezbollah and Hamas, but, you know, it's, it's mostly not terrorism aimed at us or our allies. If you talk about um, the nuclear question, well, you know, the JCPOA had kind of resolved that. We may be able to get back to something like that. If you want to talk about missiles— um, you know, in the West, that's usually portrayed as a, um, you know, they want missiles so they can fire nuclear weapons with them. Mm-hmm. But actually, if you know anything about how wars are fought in the Middle East, you know that missiles typically carry conventional munitions that are commonly used there. Um, the Saudis, the Emiratis have both investing in missile technology. So the Iranians are basically just doing what everyone else is doing. Um, if you want to talk about regime type, you could make a pretty good argument that the regime in Tehran is actually more democratic than the Saudis, um, more democratic than the Emiratis. Uh, you know, so At any rate, there's, there's not a democracy we're championing in that no, region, right? E- exactly. I mean, other than Israel, which sort of stands on its own as a separate issue, mm-hmm. um, all of the things that we're talking about with Iran, um, they're either just not major problems or they're just not problems that concern us directly. Right. I mean, they concern Israel. Yeah. Um, and, and some of the support for anti-Iranian policies in the U.S. is based on sort of people who are very pro-Israel. So people like um, like Sheldon Adelson, the Republican mega donor who is, you know, extremely pro-Israel, um, he's donated a lot of money over the years to sort of groups that are basically hostile to Iran. So, and I mean, and, and you saw very clear, I mean, House Republicans, right, right when JCPOA was, was happening, they invited Benjamin Netanyahu to come do a speech in Congress basically denouncing the deal. I mean, just to say, because I mean, I know this can be a sensitive terrain, but it's not like 
particularly subtle or secret, right? That the the Israeli government has very strong and I think well-founded objections to Iran becoming a strong a more powerful military entity there. And it would they would love for the United States to deal with this for them. But like the question for Americans is like how important is that? Well, and also just from the point of view of the Israelis, you know, um, the the Israeli intelligence eventually concluded that the JCPOA was in their interests. They right. didn't want Trump to withdraw, even though Netanyahu did, because he he holds different views on that. But but Israeli intelligence said it's in our interests to keep the JCPOA. Um, and, and we've seen that sort of disagreement inside Israeli domestic politics mm-hmm. on this stuff. A lot of a lot of Israelis believe that they would be safer if things weren't so hostile with Iran. Right. So this is this is again a fairly small group that's advocating a really hard line. Because, I mean, again, even from the Israeli perspective, a lot of this has to do with the relative significance of the nuclear issue versus other things, right? And I think the Israeli intelligence community's view is that a a credible nonproliferation agreement with Iran is very, very valuable. Obviously, they're not going to be happy about Hezbollah firing rockets at Israeli positions sometimes, but that Israel has been surviving occasional rocket fire from Hezbollah for a very, very, very long time. Israel's military is much more powerful than Lebanese militias, um, whereas the nuclear issue is a real concern for them that, you know, was potentially going to be resolved until Trump, you know, blew it up. You know, from the Israeli point of view, actually, the, like, late Obama administration, despite what you might hear, was actually really good for them. I mean, from a security point of view, uh-huh. right, you've got the nuclear deal that puts all these verifiable limits on Iran's ability to create a nuclear weapon. Um, you've got Iran itself basically bogged down in Syria and in all these other regional conflicts. And so not really sending as much funding to Hezbollah and Hamas as it had been previously. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so you find the situation where actually Israel, pretty much through inattention on the part of Iran at that time, was doing better on a security front than they are today. Mm -hmm. Right. Although, I mean, but Netanyahu didn't see it that way, right? I mean, this is a relevant sort of consideration. Um, And I mean, there was concern that if if Assad re-consolidated control over Syria, that now like opens up, you know, more more routes and and things like that. So, I mean, I, I think not totally outlandish sorts of considerations. But I mean, also, there is a question of like, it couldn't possibly justify the scale of the American military presence throughout the Middle East. No. I mean, America's military presence in the Middle East is just dramatically overblown for pretty much anything you want to do at this point, unless what you want to do is, you know, basically population-centric counterinsurgency that we mm-hmm. tried in the 2000s. Um, and then it's too small for that. But um, but it's it's basically too big for what we're trying to do, which is sort of train and equip missions um, mm-hmm. or the fight against ISIS, which is pretty much over. Most of those troops that are sitting there to deter ISIS, they're basic, uh, deter Iran, sorry, not ISIS. Um, they're just there as a signal. Right. I mean, because they're deterring attacks on themselves in a weird way, right? And those facilities and those bases would be there regardless. Um, But the Trump administration is very clear that this is sort of a a show of resolve. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, can't the Arab states that we're aligned with defend themselves? I mean, these are wealthy countries. They've had a lot of time to work on this problem. Uh, We sell them a lot of military equipment. Like, what is the – what's the issue exactly? Well, so let me let me start with the two problems, and then I'll talk about why they actually could defend themselves. Mm-hmm. So, first problem um, is that they buy the wrong things. 
Uh Right. They buy a lot of really expensive, really flashy fighter jets Uh and stuff like that that don't actually sort of provide them a lot of defense Mm -hmm. capabilities. So that's a problem, right? Um, Second problem is they have tiny populations. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, these states in the Gulf, they've all dealt with this in different ways. Some of them um, have basically foreign militaries, Mm -hmm. right? They, they, um, the, the officer class tend to come from... Europe and the uh, enlisted tend to come from places like Pakistan. Hmm. Some some of these states have done that over the years. Um, or they they sort of just have a very small military. So places like Saudi don't let foreigners serve, and they just have a very small military and a lot of American contractors. Hmm. Um, so those are the problems with right. defending themselves, right? Just compared to Iran, they are small. Um, population-wise. Population-wise. Um, that said, nobody is talking about Iran staging a ground invasion of any of these countries. Um, For for starters, they'd have to either go over water or through Iraq, right? Uh So that's very difficult, probably impossible. No reason to believe Iran would ever do it. So what we're talking about is um, sort of air-to-air combat or um, bombing raids or missiles, Mm -hmm. like are commonly used in these conflicts. Um, And in that kind of conflict, these countries shape up to look a lot better. Right. I mean, because so if you're talking about a mutual exchange of missiles, then you really – that's not a labor-intensive – Undertaking. No. And, and the Gulf states are very rich, right, in terms of, like, can you buy the missiles? Yeah, and it's something that we have just um, – we don't sell them missiles, right? They get their missiles mostly from the Chinese, but we do sell <laughs> them um, air defenses okay. and anti-aircraft weaponry, and that stuff is very good. Right. And again, right, this is, like, technology-intensive, right? This is, like, the kind of warfare that a wealthy, oil-rich, low-population state is actually – you know, like well-suited. Could potentially survive, yeah. Mm-hmm. Could potentially mm-hmm. weather, um, certainly could have enough capacity to deter an attack, and that's what's really important. Here. Right, right, all on their own if, if they wanted to. And then, of course, the United States, right? I, I mean, I think in, in your circles, uh, the phrase offshore balancing comes up. And I take it, like, embedded in that idea that you're offshore is that you could go onshore, right, if you needed to. Yeah, so the let's go back to the Gulf War, right? Mm-hmm. That first Gulf War in 1991, that is sometimes people say it's a failure of offshore balancing because we had to go back onshore, mm-hmm. but but I would call myself an offshore balancer and I'd say no, it's a success. We stayed out of the Middle East, we didn't have major troops there. Um, we funded both sides in a couple of wars to try and keep things equal. And when Saddam Hussein took Kuwait and it was apparent that our interests were actually threatened, we intervened, we sent troops to the Middle East, we did it fast, we won, and we mostly pulled out. If we had completely pulled out, that would have been a true success of offshore balancing. You know, we achieved our aims by only fighting a limited war when we had to. Right. So essentially, you could have gone all the way back out and said, look, we we proved our point here. Like, we don't even think we're going to need to go back because we showed to you that we can come and defeat your military. But, like, we'll, we'll be back. If yeah. necessary. Yeah, even leaving, say, small numbers of troops in places like Kuwait, but not engaging in that sort of dual containment um, humanitarian missions stuff that it really spiraled into. Mm-hmm, right. And this goes back to the sort of the, the no-fly zones decision, right, to the – I mean, an interesting way, right, we, we won the war, but then wouldn't – you know, if you like, like old timey wars you read about in history books, um, countries fight them, and then at the end of the war, they like sign a peace deal, right? Where the other guy's like, "Yeah, you beat me. I make some commitments here." But then, but then, like, it's good 
right? Whereas Saddam was never um, the the legitimacy of his regime was never restored, really, even as it remained in place. There was the idea that Iraq had sort of permanently become non-sovereign and we were going to have constant military overflights. And it was not a viable – I mean, I think you look back in retrospect, uh, invading in 2003 turned out to be a disaster. But I think the perception on the part of the Bush administration that the situation was not stable – Right. Makes some kind of sense, even in retrospect. Yeah. I mean, so the decision not to go into Baghdad in the early 1990s, um, to leave Saddam Hussein in power, but then to sort of issue all these really draconian sanctions. I mean, Iraq was basically embargoed mm-hmm. for most of the 1990s to keep going with the no-fly zones. It created this, yeah, this really interesting limbo where Iraq couldn't really rehabilitate itself under Saddam Hussein, but there was no real impetus for the regime to go because domestically he was still pretty strong. I mean, you can imagine an alternative universe, right, where we made a deal with other segments of the Ba'ath Party to get rid of Saddam and, you know, replace him with somebody else and where Iraq was still a, you know, a pariah state, but it, it didn't sort of stay under his rule for 13 years and it didn't stay in this limbo. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it was a really kind of an interesting decision not to overthrow him, but then to continue the pressure. Right. And so there was this kind of eight-year Clinton administration. They they inherited this policy from one Bush. And they continued with it with not I, – I mean, I think it wasn't Bill Clinton's desire to particularly do anything with regard to Iraq. That wasn't like one of his motivating issues in public life. So it just kind of drifted for a very long time in which we were not taking any steps – to overthrow the regime, but we also weren't reconciling ourselves to its continuity in any way. We were also a little schizophrenic about it. So there were times where, um, for example, we promised support to the Kurds in an uprising in the mid-1990s, and then mm-hmm. we didn't actually go in and support them when when they actually rose up. And so, um, you know, I mean, that that is horrible morally and ethically, mm-hmm. apart from anything else. Um, but yeah, we, we just sort of went back and forward and back and forward on whether we wanted Saddam gone or not. Right. And, and of course, I mean, uh, inconsistent behavior vis-a-vis Kurdish military groups has uh, continued I think through into uh, into Syria, we had like Marco Rubio yesterday. I think whenever the Iraqi Parliament voted to say our troops should go, he goes on Twitter and is like, "Well, maybe there should be an independent Kurdish state," which you know maybe there should be. I, I don't know, um, but it, it's the um, the the back and forths on this to me are emblematic of the, the the idea that our presence in the region is stabilizing is really belied by the number of times we have suggested breaking up some of these various countries, and then kind of flip-flopped on that? Yeah, um, the, the partitioning of Iraq is a bad idea that just won't die. And I, I hesitate to comment more on it as given that Joe Biden may be coming back into office and, and he was the person that originally suggested the idea right. some years back. Um, but, the, I mean, for me, I see our presence in the region as fundamentally corrosive because the deals that we have to make to stay there prevent us from taking steps that would actually be in our interests. Hmm. So, you know, before, during the Cold War, if we wanted to work with the Kurds or if we wanted to work with some specific group or some specific government, we could do it. We could give them arms or we could give them money. We could work with them. But then we could also 
you know, step back when we needed to. Mm -hmm. That's not the case anymore. Now we end up in these situations like where, you know, we relied on the Kurds against ISIS and then we promised them things that we probably shouldn't have. And then when the Trump administration withdrew, it left them sort of high and dry. And, you know, America looks bad. It poisons our ability to work with them again in the future. So we really just, we are left making a lot of deals because we want to be there. And the only purpose of them seems to be because we're there. Right, right. And, you, you know, I remember back back when, when when I was in college and I had a professor who, who was talking about Afghanistan and Pakistan. But I, I think this observation is relevant to Iran's uh, dealings in Iraq. Is You know, he said that, like, what Americans have to understand is that Pakistan doesn't have a choice about whether or not it's adjacent to Afghanistan, whereas we're there now, but we could leave. And so inherently, any effort on our part to say we're going to outlast them is, like, not credible. Like, we're on the other side of the world. They're right there. And it seems to me that there's something similar in the U.S. and Iran having, like, a tug of war about influence in Iraq, right? Which is that, like, we've become very contingently invested in what goes on in Iraq, but Iran is, like, adjacent to Iraq. Like, they they can't really walk away from, from this situation. And in some ways, it's almost worse than that because um, our presence is what drives some of the Iranian behavior mm-hmm. that we complain about. Um, and so this is sort of a classic IR theory thing, right? Security spirals, you know, where you do something and the other side sees you and overreacts and, you mm-hmm, know, it mm-hmm. ends up building up to something more than it than it should be. Um, but just because we are in Iraq, Iran feels like they have to have more of a presence there. Mm-hmm. Um, if we weren't there, they probably would be less interventionist in that regard. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's like if there were Chinese military bases sprouting up in Mexico, Americans would be very concerned about that. Yeah, right. um, exactly. I mean, there's a, you know, when I talk to undergraduates about this, sometimes I show them there's a there's a terrible meme, right? And it's just a picture of the Middle East and it just says, you know, Iran's ridiculous. Look how close they put their country to our military bases. Uh-huh. And, and that's ridiculous and it's silly, right? But it really sums up what the problem is. The Iranians feel threatened. They feel threatened because we are there and because we are meddling in regional politics and because they feel outnumbered, like we could come for them next. Mm-hmm. And that drives a kind of security-seeking behavior that makes them, um, you know, seem perhaps like they have tentacles all throughout the region when really what they're just trying to do is stay afloat against what they perceive as this American influence. Right. It's we have tentacles everywhere. Both sides. And they keep running into the Iranian tentacles. Yeah. Right. Bo- both sides are interfering, but it's in the cause of trying to counter one another. Um, so right now it's America plus the Gulf states against Iran. If it was just the Gulf states versus Iran, it would be a much more evenly matched competition. Mm-hmm. And I'm willing to bet that the intensity of that conflict would be lower. It would actually go down. Fascinating. Okay. So thank you so much, Emma Ashford. Uh, thanks as always uh, to Malachi Brodus, our engineer, Jackson Bierfeld, our producer. And the Weeds will be back on Tuesday. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. 
Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com.